Well, throughout history, God's people uh, have really have been on the front lines of showing care and compassion to those who are most in need. In the early centuries, actually, of Christianity within the Roman culture, uh, the Roman culture practiced infanticide. There was such a, in that, that day and age, even then, a poor and horrific view of children as image bearers of God deserving of life. And in that day and age, a father who, who didn't want a child, if he decided to, he could decide and had the right to literally throw a child away. And so Christians during those centuries, those early centuries of the church, would literally rescue newborn babies from garbage piles where they had just been left to die. I read of a story just within this last week of, of Christians during the early 1900s who had walked the shorelines of Portland, Oregon in the early mornings looking for babies who were born during the night in brothels and then left to die along the shore. In those, in those churches in the early 1900s in that city of Portland, it was actually the responsibility of, of deacons in those churches. They had ministries of this where it was their job, their responsibility, and their ministry to walk the shorelines looking to rescue children who were thrown out and in need. You know, one of the first things that missionaries do when they seek to travel abroad, when they head into specifically undeveloped areas of the, of the world, is they go in seeking to, how can we minister and care for the poor and the needy? Because the poor and the needy in these countries around the world are the ones who are oppressed and forgotten. And so they'll come into these countries and they'll say, we want to, we want to care for them. And so they start hospitals and they'll start orphanages. They seek to, to feed the starving, and to clothe the naked, and to house the homeless. Even within our own church history, we've, we've seen here and we've supported missionaries who have begun hospitals, who have cared for the poor and the oppressed. I mean, we're having a fundraiser even today at the end of this service to help fund a ministry that partners with one of our missionaries in Juarez, Mexico, that goes into the outlying villages in Juarez to care for, for children who get no gifts, who have no money, who live in shacks. And so we're seeking as a church to, to care for families that we'll never really ever meet. Just this year, we've, we've sent funds from our church to missionaries in uh, Slovakia who are housing refugees from Ukraine. Here locally, we've as a church served refugees from Ukraine here. We're seeking as a church to help those from other nations learn English so that they can better acclimate to the culture in which they're living. We, by God's grace, sought to serve our neighbors, our community by helping people who are in need. We want to, as a church, show compassion because this is the heart of God. See, a generous and compassionate heart for those in need is a, is a quality that's identifying God's people with God himself. And, and we're seeing even from these opening lines of Psalm 41 that this, this brings with it God's own blessing. Listen to verse 1 again of Psalm 41. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. This, this heart of compassion identifies us as God's people and it, and it brings with it God's blessing because what it's doing is it's uniting us to the heart of God himself, that God himself is a God of compassion. That is his heart. We ourselves are weak and poor and needy, that we ourselves are in need of compassion being shown toward us. We saw that at the end of Psalm 40 last week. Look at the final verse of Psalm 40. It says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me, considers me. You are my help. You're my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. See, in this 41st Psalm, David hears, he writes this, is resting in the hope of God's blessing, even as 
even as he says and talks about, as we've seen over the past 40 psalms, enemy after enemy after enemy rising up, plotting against him. Throughout David's reign as king, all people around him sought to rise up against him, to look to plot and hope for his own downfall. Yet David knows, and as these psalms that we've gone over, over the past several years now, continually bring us back to David's hope in his God. That he knows his hope is in him. He knows his, his heart is united to, to God's because David himself is, is recognizing that himself as, as king has sought to care for the poor and the needy that were under his reign. And as he recognizes that this is evidence of his belonging to the great compassionate king of kings, he rests then in the hope that his God will provide for him. And so he rests in God's blessing and deliverance, right? Like blessed is the one who considers the poor. David here, he's centering that hope on God's promise of deliverance and blessing. But it's also important for us to remember, especially as we come to this 41st Psalm, that, that we're actually coming to the end of book one of the Psalms. So what I'm trying to do here in this introduction is, is not only outline a little bit of what this psalm is talking about, but also showing even how it connects to the last 40 psalms that we've gone over the past four years. You'll, you'll notice at the beginning of Psalm 42, which we'll get to next week, it says book two. You see, the psalms are organized into five smaller books, each, each of those books carrying a, a different theme, yet ultimately each one of those themes pointing us to Christ. This final psalm in book one, as we're reading through today, is significant because as if, you rem if you remember Psalm 1 and 2, the beginning of this book, book one, it begins with the same word that Psalm 41 begins with. Seems psalm 1 begins with the same word, blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the word, blessed. And remember that psalms, if you remember from four years ago, right, psalms 1 and 2 are the lenses by which we're reading really the rest of the psalms, the rest of of the entire Psalter. And so to refresh your memory really quick, Psalm 1 begins with this saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor he sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 2, which is another lens by which we read the Psalms, closes by saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, Psalm 1 calls us to this life of holiness and devotion to God and his word where there we find meaning, we find purpose, and we find joy for our lives. And then Psalm 2 then points us to the Messiah who's going to make us right with God. Because when I read Psalm 1 and say, okay, I need to pursue holiness, not walk the path of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but my delight needs to be continually and constantly in the law of the Lord. We read that and we see I'm, I'm going to fail at this. So this is where Psalm 2 comes in is that hope where you fail, the sun's coming. This eternal king is coming who's going to set you right. This is how we read the rest of the Psalter, what it calls us to, how we live, and then the one in whom we rest in when we fall short. See, book one of the Psalms is really about this blessed man. It's about Jesus. Well, how so? Well, in Psalm 1, Jesus is the ideal man who, who has never sinned. Jesus is the ideal one who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor or has never stood in the way of sinners, nor has ever sat in the seat of scoffers. But Jesus' delight was continually and constantly in the law of the Lord. And then we get to Psalm 2, and we see that he is the eternal son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He reigns over all nations. He provides refuge then to all who will turn to him, find hope, and rest in him. And so what we've seen from David throughout book one 
As David writes really prophetically, David's writing prophetically as a, as a foreshadow of the Messiah, is that we see in David's life the Messiah, Jesus himself, one who was vulnerable, one who was also hated by his enemies, one whose enemies also sought to destroy him. That he is a Messiah, just as David suffered, the Messiah is going to suffer, but, but this suffering that Jesus will endure will not bring God's displeasure upon himself, but actually it's through the suffering of Christ that he is blessed by God. And that through his suffering, he will draw all people to himself. See, book one of the Psalms really reveals to us a, a suffering servant, a Messiah king who will be hated by the world and by his enemies but one who will go before us, one who will stand in the gap between us and eternal condemnation, and then will give to us through faith in him and him alone, eternal life and hope in God's presence forever. You see, David writes these psalms as a prophet king. He writes these, these songs regarding his own experiences in life, yes, and we learn from them, yes, but the psalms ultimately reveal to us the greater David. The Psalms ultimately reveal to us the eternal king. They ultimately point us to, to Jesus. And so if you're reading the Psalms and if you fail to see Jesus in them, you have not read and understood the Psalms correctly. And so Psalm 41, as we, uh, as we tackle this Psalm today, we're going to see David's life experiences, but we'll also see how he writes as a prophet king pointing to the hope of Christ. And so Psalm 41 that closes out book one, once again, is going to show us the heart of God. It's going to show us our need for grace. And lastly, it's going to show us the hope of deliverance and triumph that comes for those who are resting in him. So let's look at first the heart of God. Verse one again says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, we've already seen from Psalm 40 that God's heart is one of compassion, that God himself considers the poor and considers the needy, that God is a father to the fatherless. That, that God cares for the oppressed. He cares for the afflicted. That there's not one hurt in your life that goes ever unnoticed by him. He sees it all. And so the heart of God is one of compassion. And it is one of kindness. We see it most manifested in the life of Christ. And so one correct way actually of reading this very first verse, that first line would be to praise God. Uh, to bless God himself for, for his compassion. For his heart toward us who are poor and needy, as we saw in Psalm 40, that I am poor and needy. I need deliverance. So we can, we can turn our gaze and our hearts upward first to, to bless God that he is the fulfillment of this. He is the one who considers the poor, and I am poor and needy. But, but actually another correct way as well of reading this first verse is to see that God himself will also bless those who care for the poor and the needy. That David as king over Israel is actually calling on God's blessing for his life because he has sought to care for the needy people underneath his reign and his rule. These two ways of, of looking at this very first verse of the blessing really are connected to one another. Um, God is a compassionate God who cares for the poor, who considers the needy, and then blesses those who share his compassionate heart. The, the word poor here in this first verse means, means low, it means powerless, it means, it means insignificant. And so when you think of the, the poor and the needy in our society, the poor and the needy in our culture, the poor and the needy in our world today, those are the ones, those are the ones who are helpless, 
They're oppressed. They're the ones that are marginalized, pushed to the fringes of society, the ones who are abused, the ones who are neglected, the ones who are often forgotten. The poor are so often overlooked and just ignored. It's easy for us even to, to look the other way at a person who's standing on the side of a road asking for money on the street. It may be easy for us in our cars we drive by them to criticize in our minds or even out loud to tell them just go get a job. But, but so many even lack the, the resources and, and means to be able to even do that. And so David here is saying, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Hang on that word, consider. Meaning he, he doesn't say we, we're just called to, to notice them and feel sorry for them as we walk on by or drive on by. But that we as, as, as Christ followers, as God's children who have been considered by God himself, that we are to, to seek to understand so that we know how we can best help. It means to know them in such a way that we know the right thing to do to help them. As one author has said that those who consider the poor do not just have warm feelings. They give the poor their time and their attention and they discover what should be done genuinely to help them. It was Spurgeon who said regarding the care for the poor, he said that, that we do not toss them a penny and go on our way, but we inquire into their sorrows. We sift out their causes. We study the best ways for their relief and we practically come to their rescue. As I said at the beginning, Christians throughout history have not just acknowledge the brokenness of the world, but, but have actually moved to address it. That the Christians throughout history have moved into neighborhoods, moved halfway around the world to bring healing and hope to those who are without it. Do you see the heart of Christ here? Do you see God's heart here in what should be our care for the poor? God did not take notice of our poor state and then look the other way and say, well, good luck with that. But, but he saw our poor and helpless state that we were dead in our sins. And he didn't just move on past us, but he considered us. He took thought of us. He cared for us. And God himself did what was necessary to free us from our weak and our poor state and to give us life forever through his son, eternal life and eternal inheritance through faith in Jesus and Jesus all life forever with him. God himself put on a body and moved into the neighborhood, right? He considered us. God himself became one of us. Second Corinthians eight, nine says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, the more that we set our minds on the heart of God, the more compassionate we become as we begin to reflect the gospel and imitate our compassionate God. And if that weren't alone, enough, uh, uh, enough alone to adore our God and have our hearts stirred in, in adoration and in worship of who he is, that's just the first line of verse 1 of Psalm 41. The, the psalm continues as you look through the, the last half of verse 1 into verse 3. It says, in the, day of the in day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. 2 and 3 says, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You, not, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. So what do we see? We see the, the Lord delivers and he protects and he keeps and he sustains and he restores 
And David's holding to that deliverance, holding to that promise. Now, this isn't a psalm of health, wealth, and prosperity, but it is a psalm that promises God's ultimate deliverance for those who belong to him. Don't view this as a psalm that teaches you that, that if I just care for the poor, if I just do this, then God has to give me everything that I want to make my life easier. But, but rather, we read this psalm, and as we model the compassionate heart of God that's been bestowed on us, we then rest in the belief that ultimately nothing will ever, ever triumph over him. And that through him, because we're in him, because we're in Christ, that we can find peace, we have rest, we have hope through whatever life throws our way. We go through it all and say, he's enough. He's sufficient. And in the end, we know that how the story is written. God wins. This is what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus was compassionate and kind. Jesus cared for the poor, yet still, as he did all these good things, his enemies still conspired against him and ended up hanging him on a cross, thinking that they had won, thinking that they had triumphed over God himself, triumphed over Christ himself. Yet what do we see three days later? God raised him from the dead in power and glory over his enemies. See, this is the hope that we have in Christ, that through him, no enemy can prevail against us. So once we've seen the heart of God, the next thing we want to see through the psalm then is our need for grace. Our need for grace. Notice what David says in verse, verse 4. He says, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. And when you look at the, the Hebrew language here, there's, there's actually more depth than what the English translation here is even saying. David is, is praying and asking God to heal his soul. He's saying, God, mend my soul, repair it, rebuild it. See, when you come face to face with the character and the nature of our God is what we've seen in the first three verses of this psalm. You can't help then but recognize your own need for grace. David here is recognizing the depravity of his heart, the sinfulness of his soul, his need for grace, his need for forgiveness. And so as you notice the, the words of David here, notice, notice who he's turning to when he's confronted by the spirit with the wickedness of his heart. He doesn't look internally. He doesn't look to his moral goodness. He doesn't turn to his title as king to justify him. He doesn't surround himself with yes men who will tell him whatever he wants to hear to make him feel better. No, he turns here and he turns to his God and says, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Be gracious to me. Church, I pray that we would hold fast to those simple yet profoundly life-changing transformational truths. That we're justified, forgiven, accepted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As David prayed these words, oh Lord, be gracious to me. He was looking forward to the, the promised Messiah. He was looking toward Jesus. This Jesus, the ideal man from Psalm 1, who is perfect in every way, who is spotless and sinless, yet who identified with humanity, in our humanity, who took our sins upon himself. See, never forget that you are forgiven through no work of your own, no 
title you carried, no moral internal goodness you performed, but through faith in Jesus who carried your sin, who took the blame, who bore the wrath, who endured suffering and betrayal and has offered you forgiveness through his name and his name alone. I said a little while ago that if you miss Jesus in the Psalms, then you've missed the point of the Psalms. That Jesus here is the greater David, that all that David experienced in his life ultimately was pointing to the great king of kings. That even David's conflict here with his enemies and the betrayal that he himself experienced from close friends ultimately foreshadowed the life of Christ. David said in verse 5, he talks of his enemies. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die? When will his name perish? And throughout Jesus' life, he was opposed by his enemies. Religious leaders were continually plotting and hoping for his downfall. David experienced betrayal from his close friends. In verse 9, he says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. Where is this taking us to right here? He says, has lifted his heel against me. Right? That should remind us of the betrayal Jesus experienced when Judas himself betrayed Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself at this last supper, before he's going to the cross, he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9. In John chapter 13, 18, we read Jesus say that, uh, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but he says the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is the purpose of the Psalms. He's the fulfillment of the Psalms. In quoting Psalm 41, 9, Jesus is saying that just like David experienced betrayal, so do I. I'm the greater David. But where David failed to be the true king that God's people really needed, he's saying, I will not fail. I will accomplish all that's needed to redeem mankind. I will reign over all the earth. My enemies will not prevail against me. What hope is that that we need in our day and age right now? In our day today that we know that Christ reigns over all and that no enemy will ever prevail over him. See, it's in that hope, it's in this hope, that ultimately book one of the Psalms concludes with this this great assurance, this celebration, this triumph over God's enemies. And that's really the final point of this Psalm and really the, if I were to to, to thematize, if that's a word, book one, the last 40, 41 Psalms, it would be this. The theme of the book one is the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That's the theme of book one. I mean, what do we see in the remaining verses? As you skim through verses 10 through 12, what do you see? You see triumph. You see celebration. We see hope. We see life as it was intended to be. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity. You've set me in your presence forever. See, even throughout David's trials, as as was seen all throughout the last 40 Psalms, God was pleased with David and prevailed over David's enemies. David's ultimate hope was in the goodness and in the kindness and the sovereignty of his God. He knew if he was accepted by God, then nothing else ever truly mattered. At the cross, Jesus' enemies thought that they had won. At the cross, the great enemy of humanity, Satan, thought he was finally victorious. 
At the cross, Jesus was surrounded by his enemies, them shouting curses at his name, screaming at him, mocking him, thinking they had won. Yet God's delight in his son, even on the cross, never, ever wavered. Just as David knew that his God delighted in him, so did Jesus know that through his suffering, God's glory would be seen. And in his resurrection, God delighted and exalted the son above every name, above every name that's on the earth. That's what Philippians 2 points us to. The fact that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord reigns. That's triumph. That's the reign and rule of Christ. And it's through him that we find peace. It's through him that we find hope. It's through him that we find salvation. It's through Jesus that we find eternal life. This first book of the Psalms is truly the story of Jesus as written and seen in the life and experiences of King David. As was said at the beginning this, this morning, Jesus is the ideal man. He is the, the blessed man from Psalm 1. He's the reigning son of God in Psalm 2. That like David, Jesus was hated by his enemies. He was despised and rejected by men, but he walked in integrity. He was the blameless servant king who identified with sinful humanity in order to save and redeem a people back to God through his suffering and through his sacrificial death. Yet it was God the Father's delight to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat him on the throne where, where he will reign forever. And that's why this book, book one, Psalm 41, ends with this Doxology. That's what verse 13 is. In fact, every book of the Psalms ends with a doxology similar to this. Right? As, it, as it points us to the hope of this Messiah. As it points us to the hope of life eternal with this God who reigns over all things. This book concludes with this doxology, with this praise for who God is and what he has done. This book ends by saying, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen, amen. Praise God that he is compassionate. Praise God that he considers the poor and the needy like you and me. Praise God that through Jesus he saves and that through Jesus we can be blessed. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you this, this morning thanking you for, thank you for just your creation which, which points us to a creator God Thank you for the, the cool breeze right now as we sit and, and listen to your word, as we sit and, 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 and look to be changed and transformed by it. God, we praise you as, as what this psalm has led us to and really what the last 40 psalms have led us to, this, this ideal man, this blessed man, this, this king of kings who reigns from everlasting to everlasting. And so, Father, may we, as we turn our mind and our gaze and our heart to who you are, God, I pray that our hearts would be transformed and changed into the image of the Son. That just as Jesus was compassionate and cared for the poor and needy, may we be compassionate and care 
for those in need in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Father, we look to you today as, as the only one who can save, as the only one who can redeem, as the only one who can make us right with you. So God, as we, as we sit here today, as we come to an end on this, this gathering of your church this morning, maybe, may we go with this one thought, which really encapsulates book one of the Psalms. The Lord reigns. He reigns over all. So no matter what we're walking through in our life right now, no matter what we're walking through as a nation right now, the Lord reigns. And so God, may we reflect that as your people. And so God, in, in the quietness of, our, of this time right now, may we just reflect on this truth. May we confess where we need to confess, repent where we look to ourselves, and may we look to you as the king, the one who reigns, who makes us right.